All right, are we ready to get started? We should be. It's 2, oh, 2.16. Now, Pastor Cameron's going to be leading out this afternoon, but he's getting another seminar started. And I uh, apologize for being running a little bit late. I still live near here, so I went home and I tried to mow as much of my lawn as I could <laughs> during the lunch break and get back here. Uh, he's kicking off another seminar, and he's going to be over. And as I told you earlier, for those who were here earlier, we're going over the evaluation tool, but he's going to share with you the interaction we've had in the local churches uh, in District 6, where we have given them this tool for evaluation, let them discuss it as a church, and then we've come in as a conference and discussed it with the church leaders to see what their take is and give them direction. Now, that direction, and I should have shared this earlier, in our last session today, we made up what we've called an implementation guide. Okay, so you go through this and you say, wow, our church, it's, it's, there's some positives, but there are certain areas we need to grow in and improve in. What do we do? How, where do we start? How do we begin shifting away from our pastor-centered model and get more evangelistically focused? The implementation guide is actually very specific and practical steps that we've given them to do even in the order that we would have them do them. In other words, months one and two, start doing these things in your church. And then months three and four, start doing these things. That's what we're going to do in our second hour this afternoon. So here from 2.15 to 3.15, Pastor Cameron's going to be covering some of the more practical experience we've had with the evaluation tool. And then that other is going to take place from 3.30 to 4.30. Now, I said I was going to do this earlier, and the challenge is that this class always... It's like church service. Remember what we said earlier today? Like 11.35, for those who weren't here, this is a secret between us that were here earlier, that we take attendance at 11.35 because that's the apex, that's the peak, that's when we know we're going to get the most. Um, but I'm going to do this because I said I was going to do it yesterday, and I don't want to just miss out on it, and uh, I'm not going to be teaching this whole time. So while we're waiting on Cameron, I told you I was going to give you the surefire method of getting a Bible study. Now, it was when one of the first camp meetings I attended, I was not a pastor yet. I, in fact, it was right before I began Bible working. And my brother Jim, who's going to be here tomorrow teaching some stuff, he, uh, he and I were attending this camp meeting. It was a training class, a soul winning class. And the pastor leading out was a pastor named Tony Cerigliano. He's passed away since. Excellent pastor from, I think he was in North Carolina. Um, Anyway, postman converted to pastor. That was his testimony. He's supposed from postman to pastor. But he was a real soul winner. And he shared with us at that camp meeting what he called Tony's surefire method for getting a Bible study. He built it on the premise of the woman at the well, where Jesus had that encounter with the woman at the well. And he could have offered to help her when she was there getting all that water. But he knew because of the whole circumstances they were in, the prejudice that existed between Jew and Gentile, male and female, for him to offer to help her out would have likely had a response like, I don't need your help. That's you. You Jewish men are. You think all of us Samaritan women need help. You know, he knew there was because there was always tension there in that in that uh, culture. So instead of offering to help, he asked her for a favor. And it made all the difference. Now, he shared that with us. And he said, so here's what I want you to do. You're here at camp. Now, I'm telling you this. I'm not telling you just the story, but I'm telling you the same thing he told us. You're here taking a class. Isn't that true? And in order for you to be, to really complete it successfully, you, we can talk all day long about giving Bible studies and other things, but in order for you to complete it successfully, you really need to give somebody, a, share some Bible studies with somebody. Okay? So he says, here's what I want you to do. Think of somebody you've always wanted to study with. Give them a phone call. In those days, it was a payphone. Find a payphone on campus. 
give him a phone call. And because he asked us there, he said, I want to know who right here will go and do this. Call him up and say, I'm taking a class. And in order for me to complete it, I need to share some Bible studies or Bible lessons with somebody. I'm a little bit nervous, and I was wondering if you could help me out. Now, you don't have to say it just like that. I have people say, well, I'm not nervous about anything. Fine, don't say it. But that was the gist of it, asking a favor. And he asked who would do it, and we probably had about seven people that first day say, oh, we'll go and do it. And my brother and I were just like, yeah, right, that's not going to work. Next day, we started class, and he asked, okay, how many of you did what I asked yesterday? Hands went up. Okay, how many of you had got a person who said yes? I think six out of seven had yeses. It was amazing. And we're just like, that's incredible. So he said, how many today want to try it? Raised our hands. Yeah, we're going to go and do this thing. Um, the person I asked was my cousin, and she said no. But the other five people that asked people said yes. Again, all these yeses. And one of those was my younger brother, Ron, who doesn't happen to be here, but his, my sister-in-law is here, his wife. And that started a chain of circumstances. My brother started studying with him, and then that study went on hold for quite a long while, and then he resumed it with my brother Ron and his wife, and then they ended up getting baptized, all from that, starting from asking that, going to that camp meeting, and just asking somebody a favor. Pastor Cameron and I have done this, and maybe you can talk about that when you get up, Cameron, but uh, we've done this in, in, in all the trainings we've done recently, in every case we do it, it's the same. 90 to 95% of the people get yeses. Then it's like, what do I do? What do I do? Well, you, you give a Bible study. And the different, I've had, we had just at a church I did this at recently, a gentleman came up, he's like, you know, I thought about asking my brother, I've already asked him, he's always said no, he was never interested, but I thought, oh, what's it going to hurt, I'll ask him again, I'll ask him your way. He did it, and the brother said yes. So I'm just telling you, try it, and I would love to have you try it here at camp meeting so you could tell us what happened, okay? But be prepared to be giving Bible studies, that's all I'm going to tell you. And if you get a no, like I did... Ask somebody else. You'll get a yes sometime or another. Now, I'm not going to take any more time. That's the surefire method. You know the heart of the surefire method? You know what the heart of it is? Just asking. You can't ever get a Bible study with somebody you don't ask for a Bible study. So asking is the heart of it. But asking the favor is helpful. Pastor Cameron? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful day outside. But thank you that we get to be inside here at the Emanuel Institute covering these important themes and topics. As we look to know how to ignite our churches, how to really grow them, Lord, we don't want to do just something flash in the pan or something passing and faddish. We would like to build our churches around the framework that you've given us in your word, in the spirit of prophecy. So help us to understand what that looks like and how we can be faithful to the model you've given us. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So if you would, please take out that church evaluation tool again. And if you don't have one, they are over there. Here's one for you. And I think there's some actually in this corner right over there uh, on that very front corner chair. Um, so I think there might be some on this side. There might be some other ones, but hopefully everyone has a copy. Oh, there's a whole bucket right here. There you go. So there's those over there. There's those right here. If anybody needs one, come and get them or raise your hand or, you know. In some way indicate cough, a sneeze, something. All right. So let's say that you're at a local church and you have filled out this form. Okay. Now, I'm sure that Mark covered this, but I don't remember exactly what he said. But the goal for what we did in our process in District 6, does everybody know what we're talking about when we say the District 6 initiative now? Let me briefly explain. Okay. Um, one of the things, as soon as 
as soon as Mark and I came into the office, I was here just a couple months more before him, but uh, the leadership was very, very clear. What we want you to do is get out in the field and take this training to the people, okay? And the temptation is to say, all right, let's get out a calendar. Let's fill it out and just start, go a rotation around the conferences, just start, or take any invitation that comes and just fill up that calendar with Sabbaths and preaching and this kind of stuff. Let's build a website. And it dawned on us very quickly that we could fill up a calendar, go speak to a lot of different places, take a lot of pictures, have a nice website, and, all, and, and make it look like a lot's going on because a lot would be happening. A lot of activity, but it wouldn't be getting traction in a place. It's just a one hit, a flash in the pan here, and the next clip. And all you do is like have a high peak Sabbath, woohoo, and then that's it. And with 188 churches and companies, we could just do that almost on an endless loop and never get anywhere. <laughs> So, but we can't do the opposite and say, just let's just pick one and really drill down into it because we got 180. So how do you find that balance? So the idea of a single district, which in the Michigan conference there, you said 12, but there's 13 districts. The Spanish work is all one district. And then there's 12 geographical zones or districts in the Michigan conference. The UP is zone one, uh, district one. Uh, they have uh, six pastors up there. You know, basically they're all about the same size. You'll have a district superintendent and then you'll have the pastors and churches in that territory. So we picked District 6 for several reasons. Number one, they had a very evangelistically minded and eager to train um, a district superintendent, Elder Terry Dodge, who's running the AV here. Uh, they had good cooperative pastors. We talked to them and said, look, we want to partner with you and use you guys as a guinea pig. We need to develop resources. We need a place to try it out. Can you be our research and development lab? They were, they were open to that, so we appreciate the pastors buy in with that. Also, it's decent enough distance from Lansing that we can get there and back reasonably. It's not a four-hour drive each time we want to go. We can, you know, one and a half to three hours or so is what it takes to get there. And we committed ourselves to being in that district, not just by phone and email, but actually physically being there at things like board meetings, business meetings, church services, prayer, I mean, just actually being in the churches more. So we can not talk in the abstract. We can be hands-on with it. But at the same time, we also don't want to like shift from pastor dependency to conference dependency either. Right? We, want to, we don't want to be doing the work. We want to be helping facilitate you guys doing the work. Right? Uh, and then the, also the thing is, demographically, District 6 is a good cross-section of Michigan churches. District 6, thank you for that question. <laughs> Geographically, let's talk about that. We all know our mitten, right? District 6 is this, this area from the thumb back up through whatever portion of your hand this is, right? But it's that little hook around the the lake there. So it's on the east side, north of Detroit, you know, but not the far north, so you're, you know, getting into Canada, but um, that area there. And um, the, if I remember the, off the top of my head correctly, there's about, District 6 has about a total membership of, I want to say, just over a thousand members between the 17 churches that are represented there. Seven pastors, 17 churches, and roughly 1,000 members, which makes the average membership of one of those churches 64. Okay? And that is a good average size of a church in Michigan. Okay? Because there are four churches in District 6 that are over 100 in membership, leaving 13 that are under, and the average being 64. So it's a good cross-section. We figured, okay, we got some with schools, some without, some big, some are small. But it's a good cross-section. And if we can learn a model that works in this kind of capacity, we can export it then to the other districts more easily. Okay. So what we did, we started with a, a conference, uh, I mean, a district-wide rally. Uh, that was in 
Jan- the last Sabbath of January of 2019. And uh, what uh, Elder Snayman, Peppers, and Howard and I did on the first Sabbath of January was try to get into every one of those churches and preach. So we're doing two or three churches a Sabbath over the first few weeks of January to hit 17 churches in three weeks between four people. You can do it. And our goal for those sermons was one thing, get people to that rally. My sermon was literally entitled, Show Up, right? And basically, the number one thing you can do to start, and this is true too for you guys too, the number one thing you can do to start moving your church in the right direction is just start showing up to everything. Prayer meeting, business meeting, board meeting, you name it. Just whatever happens, be there. We say, we got this rally. Let's put it to the test. You're going to be there. And praise the Lord, we had well over 200. I think we had about 220, 240, something like that, which in District 6, having a Sabbath with 200 plus people, that's a, that's a high Sabbath indeed. It was great. And they most, um, 95% of them stayed for the whole day for the training and everything where we went through this, you know, evaluation tool and said, all right, after the rally, you're going to go home and you're going to start doing this. Put it in their hands and said, okay, you're going to sit down. The first stop is with your church board. Get your pastor, your clerk, and your elders, your board members ready to go through this document. And then when they're done, we'll come in from the conference side and review your evaluation with you in a church business meeting setting so that the whole church family can see what the results of this are. So the first thing you want to do is just get a diagnostic. Where are we? And this is a great tool for that. So um, the pastors went and did their thing. Oh, also, they, it wasn't the very first thing they did. They also did a 10-day of prayer program. They did it through Mark Finley's 10 Days in the Upper Room booklet and had a special prayer emphasis. We could pray 10 days of prayer in their local church contacts. And some people did it each night. Some people did it two or three times, whatever their schedule would allow for. But you say, in this time frame, in these next few weeks, make sure you do a 10-day of prayer. And praise the Lord, that was one of the, the rally was, I felt, very successful. Then we went into the local church and they started doing these prayer meetings. And as a result of just that alone, the rally, then the fall prayer meeting, several of the churches in that district have said that prayer meeting has not just increased, it has doubled or more attendance-wise just through going through the process, just to emphasize it. And so we were excited about the traction that was going, and then the church boards went to work on the evaluation tool. And then we come back in and go through in a business meeting and say, hey, this is what your church looks like. And then we go through their membership. We just basically have what shook out to be about a two-hour business meeting with each church family. And again, Mark and Wes and Royce and I took turns. So we each did about, what was it, four or five churches apiece or something. Uh, so I haven't been to every single one of the church. I think I've been to every church now in District 6 um, in some capacity. But by the way, it's not our only job this year. We're also taking care of the rest of the conference. So we're doing those one-off invitation training weekends but we're trying to focus on this one so we can take what we learned from here and apply it elsewhere, right? So anyway, you go through this and as Mark was kind of alluding to, right here in the attendance thing is where you start to get your first um, like, huh, isn't that interesting? Because you go to a church that might have maybe say 20, 30 people on a Sabbath and you say, what do you think your membership is? And you find out you got 120 people in the books or something like that. You know, you realize like, whoa, people don't even necessarily know what the church membership is. And then they re- then you start breaking it down to like, all right, how many actually attend the worship service? How many attend the Sabbath school? And I think Mark referred to me putting it in the bulletin, those attendance numbers. At the last church that I was at, I think uh, the number was 374 on the books when I first attended there. And the temptation from an evangelist pastor perspective and say, say how big is your church? About 400. 
there's 374. But you quickly realize that's not how many people are actually in the pews on the Sabbath. So he started instructing the deacons to take a head count every Sabbath. And then you quickly learn it's a big difference between 11 o'clock and 1135. So take that 1135 number, give us the high number, the high water mark, right? Well, they come back and that averaged, in our case, about 160. And when I say average, you could do, you know, over the course of a month, we did it over the course of six or eight months, and we did a nice long sample set. So it was, because you know there's seasons in the church, right? So, I mean, holiday seasons are different, summer is different. But if you aggregate it over the whole thing, spread it across, you get a good average, and that's about 160 in our case. So we started printing that number in the bulletin just to bring awareness to people, because it dawns on me, we, we track money to the penny, but we'll let people go for 20 years. And it's like, if we're going to count something, let's count people first, <laughs> And just not to neglect the one, but what did Jesus say? Don't neglect the one, but do both. You know, do, don't sacrifice the one for the other. Anyway, uh, and then we said, now, wait a minute, that's still not accurate because we, Sabbath school's in there, and that should be just as important as worship service, right? That's where you hear about the mission of the church, and you give the mission offering, and you have your small group format, and you have your Bible study foundation, and all different things you don't get in the worship service. We found out our average there was about 90 almost half of what it was for the worship service. He said, what about prayer meeting? And that one ended up being 13, right? And is it possible you have a church of 374 people in the book, but only 13 people come to prayer meeting? Yes, it's possible. In fact, I dare say it's probable, okay? So just, and as the churches went through that and saw how many people actually are here compared to on the books, that's the initial like, huh, we could have some issues here. Then when you further drill down and you start seeing like our largest demographic in, in many churches, uh, I should have brought a sample, one of these filled out ones that we the churches did because they turned them all back into us. But um, many of the churches, the largest demographic bracket was, anybody want to guess? Senior citizens, right? Okay. Um, or sometimes it's the adult, that 1964, that missing grab, that's great. But... Most of them, maybe say 80 or 90%, fell in the inactive category. So they might be there on paper, but they're not there in person. And if you don't have kids at all, and all the adults you have don't show up, then you're down to senior citizens. And as Mark mentioned, there are some churches but just throughout the Michigan Conference, not just District 6, but are, and I don't mean this too scathingly, but they're, they're one heart attack or stroke away from being done. And they realize that in their thing. They're like, look, we have the same three people, and two of them are a couple that are married to I mean, what if there was, heaven forbid, a car accident? What if there was one thing? And that's it. That's game over. That not all of them are at condition, but there's an there's a unsettling trend, right? Then we go on. Um, and we walk through, you know, the difference between active and supported, blah, blah, blah. And then the core values thing comes up. And then we have the whole church membership sitting in a business meeting and say, what is your church all about here? Well, there's, you might think you're all about, say, evangelism or prayer meeting, or the church, but you realize that only a certain fraction of your membership actually participate in those things, and only a portion of your funds go to pay for those things. So you might think that you're all about that, but you're not really. I had one of the frustrations... I was an academy uh, Bible teacher and pastor of the academy church for about eight year, uh, seven years. And, um, oh, I would be frustrated with that job because we would do an outreach event. And we would talk, it would be 
on the calendars and all the promotional materials and all the websites and the photography, all about, we want to have pictures of kids doing, and being active and so, whatever the thing was, right? The good image we want to project. Okay, make all our promotional materials about that. But when you actually go and say, all right, we're going to go on outreach this afternoon, nobody shows up. And I'm talking adults too, staff too. Just nobody comes. But then at the end of the year, it's like, hey, do you have any photographs of all the outreach and stuff? Everybody wants that to be the thing we're known for, but people don't actually do the thing we want to project. And when you start breaking it down in terms of like how many people actually participate in this function or how, many, how much money is given to it or time or focus of the board, um, that starts to open the eyes a little bit more. Now, um, another conversation that we would have is, again, the church school. People be frustrated, like, whoa, whoa, that, this is our outreach. This is our evangelism. Okay? And that is, there are definitely evangelistic elements to the work of the church school, for sure. But let me ask you, if you didn't have any kids, would you open a school? No. Every single school we have was opened because we have kids that we want to have an Advent, but they're our kids, right? And again, having worked in Adventist education, we get very, very evangelistic when our enrollment is down. All of a sudden, oh, we're a light on the hill. We want to advertise to everybody. But I guarantee you, if you had a local church school that 100 uh, church member students in there and they were all paying their bill faithful and everything, you wouldn't be putting up those billboards, Right? Because you know that this is our safe place for our kids to get an Adventist education, which is what it's supposed to be, right? But its primary function, though it has evangelistic and outreach elements, there should be some component to it. Its primary thing is to nurture the children within our own church family. It's primarily a nurture thing, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if a church says, look, 70% of our church budget's going to something that's just nurturing us, and then we need 20% for administrative costs and utilities and everything, then the less, okay, we have a great commission and 5% of our budget's going to it. You start to realize, man, where are our people going? What are they doing? What is our money doing? What is our membership? What are we doing with those membership books? And yes, Mark, I think, alluded to this. I'm trying to remember all the things that he said I was going to cover this afternoon and make sure we get it all in there. <laughs> One of those things was the, I've jokingly called it, it's half-jokingly, uh, we have this big Grow Your Church initiative, and it's agricultural, and it's motif. You know, all the icons are preparing, planting, sowing, all this kind of Well, there is a biblical principle that Jesus himself taught that in order to grow, you need to prune. Right? For instance, Jesus said, if a tree is growing but it's not bearing fruit, you need to cut it down, right? But if it is bearing fruit, what do you need to do? You need to prune it. You need to cut it too. All crops need to be cut. Some need to be cut down, just some need to be cut back, right? But the purpose of that is to enhance growth, right? You don't want, for instance, you take the agricultural metaphor that Jesus used there. If a plant is, if, if a tree is growing, but it's not producing fruit, why would you cut it down? Well, because it's taking valuable resources that could be spent like the water and the soil and the space and the sun, all of that could be used by another thing that would produce fruit, right? So, Plus, it gives the impression, I'm looking at this great orchard, but if X percentage of those trees aren't bearing fruit, it's actually hindered because I think things are going well when they're not. Remember, didn't Jesus curse a tree one time? 
because it looked like it was bearing fruit. It should be bearing fruit. And he comes up and it's just sitting there fake. <laughs> and he's like, curse you tree. <laughs> right. And you'd realize you've got to chop it down. Now, I'm not here advocating. We start just mindlessly closing churches and bulldozing. No, 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 no. But we should have a discerning, judicious approach to saying, if just because we have a tree or a church doesn't mean we just keep pouring the resources in without any kind of you know, thought process and strategy about, or even reflection on, is it even working now? Right? And you notice this in the church membership, in the local church. I guarantee you, I don't know what local church you're from, but I guarantee you it's the same. You're going to have far more accurate numbers of the people coming in than you have of people going out. Not even close, right? You know the day they get baptized, you mark it down, you have a little, you have a certificate for it, the whole thing is there, you put it on the website, you take a picture, you frame it, it's, it's wonderful. But what about the day they leave the church? Or as they're leaving, the Sabbath they skipped, the next Sabbath, nobody visits, you know what I'm saying? We just kind of drift away. And the problem is, sometimes that has happened for not just months or years, it's been decades. One of the things I did in each of the last two districts I was a pastor of is, um, I still think it's a good thing. But I left with fewer members than we came with. To the tune of each church, we dropped about 50 members in each church. Now you think, like, well, that is the coldest, mean-hearted thing I've ever heard, right? But let me tell you something. They, we didn't even get into the second tier of people who are sometimes there or might be back. We're just talking about people we didn't even know. We didn't have names. and We literally listed them in the bulletin. If anyone attending church today has ever heard of this person, please let the elder or deacon on duty know, you know? We're trying to get in touch with them. And there was that, uh, the reference it made, because there was a lady, it was one of these trainings that we did in District 6, and she was just very frustrated. She said, you know, it's the same 10 of us working all the time. How do we get more people involved? I said, well, how many church members do you have? She said, I think her number was like 130, 140 or something like that. And I said, but it's just the 10 of you doing everything, right? She's like, yeah, that's so discouraging. And I said, well, wait a minute. What if it was the same 10 of you doing the exact same amount of work, but there were only 10 members? Would you be as exhausted? as I no, that'd be fine. Because there's a discouragement gap. Because in the back of your mind, you know, where is everybody else? Why aren't they helping too? I'm out here. It's like, and it's a legitimate frustration. And it makes your work way harder than it needs to. I, I, I'm, just, I'm not even joking. I've got a document called Prune Your Church. And I'm talking about all the reasons it's good to do a judicious cutting or at least an audit and evaluation of your membership. Not just to say, I don't know, you're out. First of all, wouldn't it be great if I don't know, you come back in? Right? The goal shouldn't be like punitive. The goal is redemptive. The goal is to like, there's missing members and people like looking for, I don't know who to study the Bible. If there's a hundred people on your church books right now who probably just need a personal touch or maybe just to uh, come on back and just talk, talk, listen through it, right? And how to deal with missing members. Um, that's an important skill set we need in our churches. There's a group of people right there you can get in contact with. Um, so that gap of people between what's on paper, what actually is in person, creates a frustration because you go into a church thinking, all right, we can do all this because we've got these people. No, you can't. You don't have 150 people. You have 10. That's what you have. 
and I kind of like to make the joke that, you know, if you have a church of, you know, 50 people, about five people do everything. But if you have a church of 150 people, about five people do everything. And reality is that's how most churches operate. There's that core who do most everything, and they're very frustrated with it. And the other people think like, oh, they're so controlling. <laughs> and these people are saying like, they're so lazy. You know, one, you know, there could be some reconciliation there to broaden, because the goal, uh, I put this, we don't have a whiteboard here, but I think of a church in concentric circles, you know, the outer circle is those who are just there on paper, okay? The next circle in is those who actually show up in person, but they don't participate in anything more than just attending or supportive, right? You have the, you have the uh, just on paper, then you have supportive, then you have active, right? And then there's that core who are actually executing the plans and everything. So the goal is to expand that inner circle so that by God, and at the same time, decrease the outer circle so that ideally you have one circle. That if you have 50 members on the books, that means you have 50 active participants in the local church. So then when you see that number, it means what it says. You don't have to like decipher it and put an asterisk next to it and say like, actually that was 20 years ago, but today we only have these people. Don't do that. Accuracy, transparency, accountability. These things inspire trust and build confidence. Um, I, it's, accurate information for me just makes me feel at ease. For instance, I do not enjoy, pretty much in any way, flying on an airplane. Don't like it. It's unnatural. God didn't intend it. Someday we'll have wings. Until then, whew. And for my, my whole hang up, once we get to cruising altitude and descending, I'm usually fine. But it's that taking off thing, you know? And these things are huge and they're heavy. And, I, and I've seen all the cargo just like flooding into the bottom of it. And it's like, I'm so heavy. And I see all these people and the people are getting bigger all the time too. And it just, and I'm telling you, and you, you hear those big engines go, and it starts to rumble down. And it's like, I know what we're about to do. We have to get all of this up there, right? And it's got to work. You don't hear a lot about fender benders. And, you know, it's, it's either up or it's down. It's either, and so you start taking off, like, and, and you hear the, and I don't, if you're a bad flyer, I'm sorry. I'm just, like, sharing my personal. Right. But one thing, I really wish that there was a ministry they could do. I love it. On the bigger flights, we go overseas or something, they have, a, like, the screen, and you have all that information. Here's our altitude, and you can see it going up. Praise the Lord. You can see the speed. Oh, it's increasing. Good. And, uh, and, that, and, and when we're banking on the side, it's like, no, no, no. We knew that was coming. It's part of it. They used to have it where you could listen to the pilot's conversation and stuff. They're like, all right, bank to the right. It's like, so when I feel the airplane do it, I knew what was going on. That was accurate, right? It just makes you feel better to have accurate information. I, I literally have talked to flight attendants. I shouldn't reveal this much, but um, I've talked to flight attendants. It's like, saying, couldn't they? You wouldn't even have to hire somebody. Just have a computer program that just talks you through what's actually going on in the airplane right now. Like, by the way, we're at 10,000 feet. That's when you can turn on these things. There's a little turbulence up ahead, so if you feel any bumps, that's what that is. We're going to be taking a right turn. Like, thank you. So you don't just, like, fly by, oh, what are we doing? You know, Oh, now I know what we're doing, right? It's accurate. Wouldn't it be nice to walk into a church and the books are accurate? That those are the actual numbers. We don't have to, like, second guess and hope it turns out like that. I know we're going to invite them, but we don't ever know what's going to... Wouldn't it be nice to have things just work and you know it and you could just be confident in it? 
I think we need that kind of transparency and accountability. I think it builds confidence in the church. And the first step is to look with an honest glance, what are our numbers? Who are we really? Okay. Anyway, so we go through all that and you look at all the activities. There is one, and I don't know, I wasn't here the whole time, but did Mark go over the idea of tying this to the cycle of evangelism? Because if not, this is one of the edits we're going to be making to this document. I'm pretty sure of it. Because I think the trick question was asked earlier, if we actually had in the local church total member involvement, if every single member were doing something in the church, would your church grow? Not necessarily is the correct answer. Maybe. Because what if everyone was active in the church, right? But they were all just doing social events inside the own church. Or they were all just doing felt needs ministries. They were all just doing one thing. Well, you got to have, are they doing preparing the soil ministry? And are they actually distributing literature and sowing the seed? And are they af- offering Bible studies and following up on those Bible studies? Are they holding evangelistic campaigns? Are they, are they doing all the necessary elements? Or are you just doing one thing a whole lot of? And Because I know there's a lot of churches that have active members who are very frustrated because you're not seeing any outcome. Well, it's only because you're doing one phase. It's just like you're tilling the soil. I've sowed so much seed, but you've never cultivated it. You've never weeded. You've never harvested. And you're frustrated because you're hungry. It is not the seed's problem. God has put all the tools in our hands, but we need to know how to work the system he's given us, right? I believe that in the local church, the goal shouldn't be to reinvent the wheel. We need to learn to drive the car that God's already given us. Okay, and I believe in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy and in our own church experience, we've got plenty of good ideas of how to do it right. It's just actually doing it, following through with what we need to do. Anyway, a little diatribe there. But that's where we, I think we need another step in this document, maybe in this big blank area right here, to say like, now look at those ministries and where do those line up in the cycle of evangelism? And if you notice that your church is really geared toward this one thing, Or really, you're all about the nurture, you're all about the preparing the soil, or you hold evangelism, but that's the only thing you do, right? No wonder you're getting incomplete or less than satisfactory results because you're not doing the full cycle. Anyway, that's missing from this, and I think it needs to go in version 2.0. But we'll keep going. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, now what was fun is when we get to step three, the church growth indicators. Man, is it already that time? Shoot. Okay, that's okay. Church growth indicators, this is where it was fun because these are subjective. Everything else was quantitative. Just count how many of this and put a number to it. But when you got to the subjective, qualitative aspects, like on a scale of 1 to 10, how do you feel your church does with this? I honestly was blown away at the forthrightness and um, sincerity with which church members filled this out. And it was really interesting to see, all right, here's what the pastor thinks it is. Here's what the members think it is. And then we'll see in just a minute what the actual numbers bear out. Okay? But, you know, um, one to ten, is your, are you passionate about church growth? Uh, number two, our church board consistently places the growth of God's church at the top of our board meeting agenda. And there were people who filled it out differently because what does top of the agenda mean? Does that mean the first item in a list? Or does it mean are the most time spent in the meeting, even though it might be number five on the list? So what does top mean? So these are some interpretive things that kind of skew the data a little bit. And so I think we could write those just a little bit more clearly. But when we get to the work of the board, which you're all going to attend later this week, um, 
I really like that presentation because I like the church manual a whole lot. It's really good. But it outlines, here's how your board meeting should run. And did you know that the very last thing, one of the very, and now it used to be until 2015, the very last thing on every church board agenda was talking about like the finances. The very last thing. And it says, if you don't have time to go over it, make a subcommittee and move on. The number one thing you're supposed to talk about at the church board is evangelism, planning for every member to be involved in the work of the church. How many boards actually function that way, though? They're not. So I'm not saying, here's a new thing, we're going to get rid of that board. No, I want you to have better boards. Why don't you keep your board and just work it better? Okay. Uh, anyway, so all those different things, and you come down and add up that total tally there um, in exercise 3.2, page 6. And if on that scale of one, if 10 items on a scale of 1 to 10, if the best you could muster was a 50 or less, guarantee you your church is declining in membership. Like if that's qualitatively how you feel about it, we've got a strong hunch that quantitatively when we look at the raw numbers, you're going to be right. And of course, 50 to 60, maintaining but not growing, so you're plateaued. Right, 60 to 70, experiencing low growth, 70 to 80, experiencing excellent growth, and this is all theoretical because we've never seen one get that high. At least not in District 6. We've got 17 churches, not one of them was 70 or 80. Most of them would score themselves in the 50 to 60-ish range. Most of them came out with the idea that, you know, looking back at all these different factors, our church is probably maintaining or slightly growing or slightly, but it's really kind of an even keel. And that's when I'd say, now let me bring you something that you didn't have, and I'll pass this out to some of you, not to some of you, I'll use some of you to pass them out. All of you will have this resource in your hand. I've taken the names of the churches off of here, but the three samples that you have on this document come from District 6. But I'm not going to tell you which churches they are, we're not trying to compete and you know, make anybody look good or bad, that's not the goal, it's just to share information. But... After they did their evaluation, we'd come back in and say, now let's look at the actual numbers. How is your church doing in growth, in evangelism terms? Now, how we, as you're passing this out, I'll tell you how we came up with these numbers. First of all, I think Mark alluded to this earlier, that eadventist.net is the online church clerk database that every local church has access to and should be using to keep track of their membership. Okay, eadventist.net. Okay, uh, you might, your church probably has it. You may not know it as a member because it's usually something only the clerk and the pastor deal with. It's just a, just a database, a file system, really, an online digital thing. Um, but basically, it keeps track of all your members and your family units and blah, blah, blah. And like any data, it's only as accurate as the input you give it, right? So... For instance, that's one of my struggles. Uh, the Sabbath School Personal Ministries Department is responsible for BibleStudyOffer.com. And um, people always ask you, how many Bible studies are going on because of BibleStudyOffer.com? That's one of the hardest questions to answer. I can tell you how many requests have been made. We've got those down to the person. Now that's, by the way, I think the number is about 5,700. We're floating around the 6,000 mark since Bible Study Offer has been launched. And the majority of those, over 5,000 of those, are right here in Michigan. And uh, I wish I had time to do a whole Bible study offer presentation, but it's a great ministry. You got to use it, but it's only as good as you use it. I had, I had a lady, well, we won't get into that. You got to stay on track. Um, but eAdventist, 
The membership numbers, if you think they're off, then go talk to your clerk and your pastor and see if you can get them right. But that's, it's only as good as what the input comes in. But they're pretty accurate because clerks are usually on there doing their job pretty well. And what does it mean to say evangelism growth? Well, let's look at the top one here, the Michigan Conference. Now, this one, I did leave the name on it because it's our shared sisterhood of churches, our whole package here in Michigan. And from 2003 to 2018, that's a 15-year sample, or I guess 16-year sample, um, but that's the earliest we have e-Adventist numbers. So it's a good sample set, set, a decade and a half or so. And right now, at the end of that time, you see the first line, total Michigan Conference membership is uh, 26,738. At the end of 2017, the beginning of 2018, 26,738 Seventh-day Adventists in the state of Michigan. Praise the Lord. It's good. Uh, By the way, if every Seventh-day Adventist member would win one person to Christ a year, we would obviously double that every year. But we'll see that we haven't been doing that. But how have we been doing? Well, let's go to total evangelism growth, which is the next line down. Okay? You have baptism, and by evangelism growth, I want to qualify what we mean. That is baptisms, people who are not Seventh-day Adventists, and join the faith either by baptism or by profession of faith. They might have been baptized somewhere else and come in through profession of faith. But this does not count like transfers from one church to another church within the conference or even from some other conference into Michigan. This is just evangelistic growth. That's great, but they're not members of the church until they're baptized members no, of the church. Yeah, that's what I'm, no, they, we've, we've decided to count children as people. <laughs> yes, and, and I'm not being facetious. This isn't total evangelism then. No, it is. No, because the kids are, are brought up through this. No, you didn't hear me. Baptized children are on this list. If you have a 10-year-old who's grown up in the church, but they haven't made their decision for Christ, they're not a Christian yet. Right. But if they, but if they get baptized, they are a part of the statistic. Evangelism growth counts baptized. By the way, I'm not being harsh to say your kid's not a Christian. What I'm saying is that they haven't made that decision for themselves. They might be in a Christian household, a Christian church, or school. Yes, ma'am. I was a church clerk for several years. Okay. They're not considered members. Well, they, no, children who are baptized. Right. Exactly right. That's my point. Is that children are not considered members until they are baptized members. They make their decision for Christ. So this is the number of people of whatever age, that decide to join the Seventh-day Adventist Church either through baptism or profession of faith. That's what we're calling evangelistic growth. If you have a child who becomes a member of the church, praise the Lord, they will get baptized and be part of that statistic. Until then, they're just part of the larger church family, but they're not, they might be inside the family unit, but they're not going to be listed as a member. They can't hold office, they're not on the nominating committee, that kind of stuff. They're not members, okay? All right, that's why I just wanted to say, this is where, what's that? No, no, profession of faith, not professional member. I would love it if we have amateur members <laughs> and then professional members. No, no, that's not how that works. I have encountered a pastor. She said she's a pastor. She's not baptized, but she's a member. How did that happen? I don't know anything about that situation, but I'm telling you, if you're a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, there's only two ways to become a member. You either get baptized here or you got baptized somewhere else and you want to, by profession of faith, transfer your membership to this denomination from another denomination. But if somebody moves from Clare to Midland, that's not growth. <laughs> You're just moving around. Because inside the Michigan Conference, it's not like we lost one or gained one. You just switch places. That's it, right? It's swapping. 
You see what we're saying? We're trying to talk about actual new people coming into the church, whether they're young or old. That's what we mean, to be clear. Okay, now, total evangelism loss. Now, it seems weird to say evangelistic loss, but it's the opposite of that, right? That is those who have been removed from membership, either by their own request. By the way, if someone writes in and says, please remove, remove my names from the books, you don't even have a conversation about it at the business meeting. You just mention it. You don't open the floor to discussion. You honor their request, and that's it. Now, hopefully it doesn't get to the point that people are just writing in letters and you don't have any contact. Odds are you have a long process before it ever gets there, right? But if someone says, I'd like to remove my name, you just honor their request. You don't hassle them. That's the thing. So removed or removed not by their request, but by the discipline process. Okay? Or there's another category, missing. Death is not... I'm t- let, me, let me do this, all right? <laughs> I know there's... What if they move away? What if they die? We're not talking about that. We're talking about removal, first of all, either by their choice or the church's choice. Or they've gone missing and you don't remove them from membership, but you do move their membership to the missing category and it no longer counts as part of your membership record. It's in the conference church in a category, a big box called missing. So there's... but. For all intents and purposes, it goes off of your account at the local church. Okay? That's what we're talking about. Now, total evangelism loss, that means removed or missing. For the Michigan Conference, oh, by the way, if you didn't even mention this, the first one, evangelism growth, was 10,896. That means in 15 years, we've had almost 11,000 baptisms for profession of faith in the Michigan Conference. Okay? But in that same time, we've had 3,968,61 people either choose to leave, be, re- be removed for discipline reasons, or have just been recognized as missing and gone altogether. Which tells you then our average annual evangelism growth, you just basically take the big number and divide it by however many numbers, were, how many years you're doing this, right? 15, 16, whatever, was 726.4. But at the same time, our average evangelism loss is 264, Meaning our net average evangelism growth for each of the past 15 years was 462.4. Now, I say this because of the same thing like on the airplane, the information. It helps you know what's actually going on. When we have reports of baptisms, we're going, praise the Lord for every one of those. But we have to recognize that for every 726 people, 264 are going missing or being removed, or requesting removal. And again, these numbers don't talk about transfers out, people who move to another state, or people who die. This is just looking at our evangelism success or failure. Okay? That's how they came up these numbers. There might be a better way to crank the numbers, but I'm trying to do the most simple, succinct thing we can do. All right, so that's for the conference over the whole during that time period. I picked out, almost at random here, Three churches from District 6, and I just call them Sample Church 1, Sample Church 2, and Sample Church 3. Okay? Sample Church 1 has a membership of 135. Their evangelism growth over the past 15 years was 50 people. They had 50 baptisms profession of faith, but during that time, 11 were removed or marked as missing. So, 
Their average evangelism growth is 3.33. Their average loss is 0.73, making a net average evangelism growth each of the past 15 years, 2.6 people. Luckily, you can round that up because it's past 0.5 and say about three people join and stay in your church every year. Now, you can start talking about, now how many people move away? How many people die? But if your number of funerals is the same as your number of baptisms, then are you growing? No. No. No, sir. <laughs> you're swapping out a living for a dead. I agree, but you're still growing. You're gaining people, even though they're dying, you're gaining people that have a potential Yes, you are, you are taking someone who died and replacing them with another person who is alive. Right. Which has a potential for... Sure. And that's why you're not saying you're not declining, but you also can't say that you are growing. You have to like go past sea level to grow. So if for every three people that come in, three people die, you're going to maintain that same number. And that, again, doesn't factor in transfers out. So... Okay, but let's say even best case scenario, you're plateauing with a slight tilt up on the horizon, but where's your church going to be in 10 years? I mean, just barely squeaking. So it's not in danger of closing. Nobody's like, oh, we're going to need to, you know, change the status of this church down to company, you know, which isn't a thing we do, which I absolutely think we should do, but we'll come back to that later. Oh, we could talk about it right now for a second. <laughs> If you have a local church, in order to become a church, you have to go through certain processes. It takes a, it takes a while. You have to demonstrate uh, attendance and membership and evangelism growth. You have to have uh, financial autonomy and sustainability, uh, uh, good tithe returns. and offer. I mean, there's a certain rubric. You don't just say, hey, we bought a building. Can we call it a church? You have to demonstrate. And so it usually takes a, a branch Sabbath school, then you have a company or a group, and then a company, and then that's the, it's a process, right? And they usually have a ceremony, hooray, we're a church now. But once you get that church brand, that designation, you know that there's really no, like, what happens when your membership starts declining after that? And maybe drops to half and half and half. So we have, we have companies that might have 50 people active and active and active, and they're not a church yet, but we have churches that have five people. So, you know, I think it would be good to have a retroactive review and so like, hey, maybe, plus it's not an insult. Again, it's not punitive. The goal is to be redemptive. Maybe if we designate them as an endangered species, we could do inter, you know, we could, we could get in there. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Intervention. I was thinking not interference. That's not what you want. You want interventions. You know, you want, you want strategies in place. Hey, maybe we should focus our energies on those ones that are hurting the most and build them back up instead of just letting them quietly drift away off into the oblivion. And, it, it, and you know, I, look at the, and it, I look at the model of the local church in the book, in the book of Acts and in the early Adventist church, but especially in the book of Acts, you know, um, their best pastoral work would go into the field and raising up new churches, making new believers and training them for service, right? And once a church was established, it had its elders and its deacons, it was firing on all pistons, great, you guys are, your plate is already spinning, I'll come back and check on you, but you got this. 
But we do it, and not just in the Michigan conference, we do it in all conferences. The complete reverse of that. The biggest churches that have 20 plus elders and all these committees and all these, they'll have a pastor, an associate pastor, an intern pastor, and a Bible worker. They get all this pastoral care for people who should be able to take care of themselves. When we got churches out there dying on the vine. And again, I'm not saying they need a settled pastor and that's going to fix it. They need a trainer. They need an equipment. They need an evangelist. They need to get life and be built up so they can handle their things themselves and then move on, right? But we need to think from a conference perspective, how can we build up these churches? Um, Elder Mitchell was very fond about it, and I love it, talking about entering into the unentered territories, the dark corners of Michigan. Do you know that some of our churches are the dark corners of Michigan? And that they need just as much help, and they're just, we've got to find a strategy to get there. I'll tell you something, one thing we're toying around with, and I have to give the credit to Pastor Christian Hoday for coming up with his name, uh, but we need a program, maybe call it the M-I-C-H inary. You know, a missionary. But people, you, we're not asking you to go overseas. We're not asking you to raise a ton of money. We're not asking you to get a new job or relocate. But why don't you look for those small churches that need your help? And if you're within a reasonable driving distance, just maybe go and bless them a little bit. Like I'm in, I'm in the Lansing area, and I can tell you there's couple of very large churches in the Lansing area, but there's some satellite churches that are, whoo, they're struggling. And when my wife and I moved to the area, I can't tell you how many people are like, oh, you're going to join the big church down. It's just assuming you're just going to gravitate to the big thing. You've got kids, that's what you want. No, it's not. We put our membership in a church that has an average attendance of about 30 or so. And the last two Sabbaths I was there, which is kind of a rare event that I get to be in church, but I taught the kindergarten class because I was the one who was there. <laughs> you know? And for our upcoming Jesus on Prophecy meetings, I reached out to the pastor of the large church, and he was willing to work with me and say, look, could we even have a few of your members come help us run the children's program so we can even have an evangelistic campaign? Just help us. You know, That we need to care for our own. We need to stop looking at the church as a place to feed me. But I need to think, how can I be a blessing to someone else? Where can I be used? Here am I, send me. Anyway, we need to get back to this. But So this church with 135 members had 50 baptisms. and Well, you saw the first sample church one. This one also, I believe, is the one that has a church school with it, which is fine. Uh, there's several churches, lots of churches in our conference have that same situation. Situations, they had 2.6 growth rate. Now, look at the sample church too. It has a membership of 24. That is not just the average attendance. That is the on-paper uh, membership of the church. Their average attendance, I think, is about maybe 510. Which, by the way, is fantastic. 10 out of 24? If you had 100 out of 224, you'd be like, hey, we're doing pretty good. <laughs> So it's, it's amazing how consistent these trends are across. It's just, you know, Russian doll type of situation. It just gets bigger and smaller, but it's the same proportion, right? Um, but they, over the course of, look at this, over the course of 15 years, they baptized 15 people. Praise the Lord. But what happened in the next line? They lost 17. And again, I give this church great credit because at least they have accurate books. At least they were honest about it and said, look, they're missing. Let's, let's designate it as such. Let's call it what it is. And I hope that those went missing 
at least got a, had an opportunity to turn them down when they went to knock on their door or send them a letter, give them a phone call or something, or gave them a loaf of bread or whatever it is you do, you know? Um, and I think that we need a process in place for what do you do when people don't show up to church anymore? How do you go reach out to them? Or people have been gone for 20 years. What's the letter you can say? And so we put together, when the church that I was at, we tried to put together a letter that would um, just say, hey, we would... I'm the new pastor here. I haven't had a chance to meet you. I'd love to. Here's my phone number, my personal email. Please contact me. I'd love to get and visit with you. But if you've moved your, if you're moved to another place and you're an active member of another church, praise the Lord. We would just request you take your membership with you, right? Or if you don't want to have anything to do with us, we're so sorry for that loss, but we'd like to know that too, just because we want to be accurate and deal with you honestly. And sure, there's going to be some people offended by that. I had some people very mad at me. You're threatening our church membership. No, I'm not. I'm recognizing the reality. It's neither punitive or anything else. It's just calling it what it is. Um, and have you noticed, did I give you this talk about barcodes? Apparently not. Okay. I am astonished at our hubris and audacity when it comes to public evangelism. We'll take people we have never met at all and say, good evening, welcome to Unlock Revelation, welcome to Jesus on Prophecy, here's your barcode. Every night when you come in, we're going to scan you, and we're going to keep track of how often you come, which is what we should do. Why do we do that, by the way? Is it because we're just a creepy cult or something? No, because we care about them being there. That's the same reason we incentivize. If you come to 12 nights, you're going to get a free Bible, and each night we're going to have a giveaway, we're going to have a children's book, because we want them there, right? We're trying to encourage this good behavior, right? And plus, if they stop coming, the night after you preach the Sabbath, you're like, aha, I see what's that, you know? Because we have a vested interest in it. And they totally get that. They're fine with it. I usually like to do on my first night's question and answer, what's the mark of the beast? Is it barcodes? <laughs> it's like, no, this is, not a, this is not the mark of the beast. We just handed you at the door, you know? And it kind of lightens the mood, but... Um, we have no problem marking and tracking visitors like cattle. But as soon as you become a member of the church, how dare you try to judge how often I come to church and what things I come to, blah, 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 blah. We get kind of a snooty, kind of an ownership mentality. I'd love to see a church have barcodes for their members. And every time you come to prayer meeting or Sabbath school or church, boop, boop. Now we laugh about it, right? It seems literally laughable, but that's exactly what we're about to do in just a few months to hundreds if not thousands of people who come to unlock or Jesus and prophecy. We think it's totally fine for them, but it's lunacy for us. What is wrong with us? You know, I, <laughs> I have this smartwatch and a Fitbit tracker and all this kind of stuff. I like to know how many steps. I, I, like, I like information and quantities and stuff. And wouldn't it be nice to know, like, for instance, in the church, man, you can't designate someone as missing if they've been, unless they've been missing for two years. Well, how do you know if they've been missing for two years? What happens? You sit around and, like, I haven't seen this person in a while. And then somebody else is like, no, I think I saw him six weeks ago. Oh, I saw him six months ago. No, no, I haven't seen him in six years. Who's right? We have no way to know. And we don't want to be like, I feel you've been gone a long time. And they're like, I've been here every week. I'm just quiet. <laughs> I sit in the back. You don't want that. So why don't we keep accurate books of our own members? We have focused so much on our rights as members. But you know there's another side of that coin that have responsibilities as members? That membership comes with responsibility. 
look at these church growth statistics, and I guarantee if you took this um, little dynamic uh, evaluation tool, you would find that your church will match something like this. That most churches are not on a death spiral like plummeting, hey, because we don't recognize the people who are leaving. They might actually, but we don't have the numbers for it. But most of them are, would classify themselves quantitatively and qualitatively as pretty steady. But in reality, is you think you're doing this, but you're actually kind of doing this. And what we want to do is get a hold of that reality and do intentional interventions to right the ship and get us going in the correct direction. Do we make sense today? All right, praise the Lord. We have to close this down, so I'm going to have a word of closing prayer, and then we'll take a break. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can be here this afternoon. Thank you that we can look at the work of the church and not just how we feel about it or how we want it to be or how we idealize it, but for what it really is. Help us to have the spiritual courage to do what's right because it's right. Teach us how to operate the church the way you want us to function. And for every church that's represented here, Lord, I don't want just to see like steady. We want to see growth. We want to see addition. We want to see multiplication. By God's grace, we want to see exponential growth. But Lord, teach us how to do it so we can be faithful disciples and someday we can hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. If we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.